This is the Fathering Project podcast, Figuring It Out Together, where we tackle many challenges facing dads and father figures and explore fathering across all ages, from newborns to toddlers, school age and teenagers. We speak with experts in their fields to help you navigate solutions and positive outcomes for each stage of your fathering journey. Let's figure it out together. Hello and welcome to the Fathering Project podcast. Kati Gapayar here and joining me today is a special guest coming all the way from Canada, Tracy Castles. Tracy comes to us with a wealth of knowledge and expertise in the parenting space. In today's podcast discussion, we'll be chatting about sleeping and settling baby and what all new parents need to know. But first, a little info about Tracy. She's the director of Evolutionary Parenting, an online platform she founded in 2011, which disseminates the research on parenting, provides resources, courses, and individual support to families around the world on a range of parenting issues. She has a BA in Cognitive Science from the University of California, Berkeley, an MA in Clinical Psychology, and a PhD in Developmental Psychology, both from the University of British Columbia. Her academic work has been published in peer-reviewed journals, including Psychological Assessment, Midwifery, and more, and she serves as an advisor on the Children's Health and Human Rights Partnership. Tracy, a very warm welcome to you, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's fantastic um, to have an expert like you here. If you don't mind, we'll jump straight into the questions. Tell us a little bit about evolutionary parenting and how you have been working with parents over the years. So evolutionary parenting is a site, as you you kindly said, I started um, in 2011, which was after the birth of my daughter. And it really started as a platform to share information, science-based information on parenting that I did not feel I had found or seen in the mainstream you know, as I went through the process of birthing my own daughter and and researching everything, uh, I I was very confused by what I read because none of it matched what I was actually reading in in the science journals. So I decided to have a platform to try and share some of this information uh, to disseminate it to others. And over the years, it's grown uh, into providing individual consultations where, you know, I, I work with people on a lot of sleep problems. That's a very popular topic that comes up. And, but also things like discipline and understanding toddler behavior, understanding different temperaments of children and how they respond to the world and how, how our parenting affects those things as well. So it's really been a range of, of topics that have kind of grown as my kids have grown and as my delving into the research has grown with it. Um, so yeah, that, that's really kind of what the site is there for, to provide a variety of ways for people to kind of explore the science of parenting. That's fantastic. There's sometimes so much information overload out there and new parents get caught up in you know the opinions of family and friends and the amount of information research online. So it's good to know that they can go to one place that's research-based and um, also lived experience. Now, That's true, you know, though I do try to keep my lived experience to a minimum, I have to admit. <laughs> um, we know every baby is different, Tracy, so what works for one family might not work for another, but do you have a few key tips for new parents to work together as a team to sleep and settle their baby? Yeah, so I should start by first saying that I think 
there's a lot of pressure for families to have a baby that settles and sleeps well. And so right off the bat, the biggest thing is setting the appropriate expectations. Families need to know that babies waking, wanting to be held, wanting to be close, wanting to feed, whether that's breastfeeding, bottle feeding, chest feeding, whatever you name it. Um, this is something that they they're born to do. And there's a lot of very good biological reasons why they do this. And so if at the beginning, couples can set appropriate expectations and say, we're going into this knowing we might be tired. We are going to deal with a lot of, of wakings and depending on the temperament of your baby, the health of your baby, uh, the feeding relationship with your baby, there's a lot of different things that can affect how frequently a baby wakes and whether some form of, of medical or other intervention is needed, not behavioral, I don't advocate sleep training at all, but that other forms of intervention are needed. It can set the stage to build up how are we going to support each other right off the bat? Because I think so many of the problems that come up amongst families is this mistaken belief that we're going to be able to just make this baby sleep long hours. And so they aren't working as a team right from the get-go. And so if you go into this with this, you start to look at, okay, how can I support you? And generally speaking, in a lot of families, especially early on, it is one parent that takes the bulk of the sleep. And I'm, you know, I know in the research, it's definitely mothers that often get talked, but I've worked with families where fathers have taken the lead and they have been the primary carer throughout the night. And whoever that is, the other person needs to really view themselves as I am supporting that person in a variety of ways, because babies do naturally incline towards one person. They're building up their safety in the world and they need that one person who provides them with that sense of security and safety. And it's not saying you're not gonna have a relationship. It's not saying you're not gonna be able to settle your baby down the line, but you really need to view yourself as supporting the other parent in what they need. It may be naps in the middle of the day, if you're able to do that with work. And I understand there's a lot of nuances here, why so much work is one-on-one, -on -one, but, Whatever that is, you need to look at what they need and then be able to support it. Um, I will say one of the things that I find very helpful is when parents start out taking turns baby wearing, if they're comfortable with that. And different people like different wraps. The male body can sometimes feel a little different. And they, my husband always preferred a different carrier than I did. But that proximity and that close, you can do it skin to skin if you want. But even if you're going out really builds attachment and gives a partner a break. And it gives the other parent, the non-primary parent, a chance to really bond because babies will often sleep on you in that situation, which is really helpful, gives the other person a break. And that's one of those things that I always think is starting out as one of the key things you can do. The other thing I can say is, and I won't go into all the details, but there's a lot about the biology of how we sleep. So in my sleep course that I offer, it is a whole section, a whole week is dedicated to understanding how certain things we do, like the use of lights and temperatures, et cetera, all influence our overall circadian rhythm and sleep patterns. And starting certain habits very early that may be contrary to what we're used to because we are not a society awash in good sleep habits, it can be hard, but it's really helpful in the long run for just setting the stage for what I always call optimal sleep. It's not 12 hours in a row. It's not even eight hours in a row. Babies wake a lot, but maximizing what you are getting and increasing the quality of that sleep. 
Um, it is um, an absolute um, necessary thing, sleep, isn't it? Um, and it's a team effort to be able to look after this little being that's come into your life. I remember having my first child and somebody who had had children before said to me, um, assume you have no control over anything. <laughs> you come from a place where that. you have control to a place where you have no control over anything. <laughs> I think it was a good setup. Exactly. Actually. Yeah. I've heard it said, someone else said, you know, just flip a coin every day and then see that's going to be about as much as you can predict what's going to happen is just every day flip that coin again because it could be totally different. <laughs> that's a good one too. How about for dads, um, Tracy? If dad takes part in a lot of the settling, is there a particular impact on the baby dad bond? Well, we don't know. There isn't a lot of research on fathers and kids with sleep in particular, right? If you're just talking about settling with sleep and everything, that really isn't a question that I know of that's had a lot of research on it. What we do know with fathers is that the more active they are, in being involved with their children, being there to support them, being there to engage and play with them, to comfort them, to hold them, to have skin-to-skin -skin contact with them early on, and then lots of other physical contact later. That is all really important in building that bond. Um, there's another thing, though, that I always advocate for, and it always surprises fathers. So one of the things that a lot of dads experience is there hits a stage where they try to help and baby's just like, I want mom. And I know a lot of people have gone through it. And most of our culture tells people, well, just push through, you've just got to hold them and get through it. And I go back to research that we know babies view people at a very young age, as what we call hinders and helpers. And so they will see if someone's trying to help someone, they will see if someone's trying to hinder someone. And in my view, and in a lot of work I've done with families when they've faced this to try and overcome that and rebuild that bond is for fathers who are facing this or, or mothers, if it's the opposite and you've got a, a primary caregiver father, um, or if you've got two fathers and one father is not, however it works, um, when the other parent is struggling with this, it's to kind of start saying, okay, what does my kid want? And how can I facilitate that so that my child sees me as trying to help them? So for example, if a father goes in to settle a baby overnight and the baby won't settle from for dad, they just wants mom, that's it. If you keep holding a baby and keeping them away from mom, that's probably negatively affecting the bond to a certain degree. However, if you can be the one to go in, pick up baby, say, you know, I think you really want mom. I'm going to take you to find mom. Let's go find her together. And then you go in and make that transition. It can be a little hard for mom at the time being because she's got to do a few more wakings. But the more dad does that, the more the child starts to see dad is being this helper in this moment. And the more dads, the more dad becomes that helper, the more that bond grows and the more comfortable the child becomes with dad to the point where suddenly, oh, you know what? I know you could bring me to mom, but really I don't need it anymore. And so a lot of fathers I've worked with have had that exact situation and they've worked through it over the span of sometimes a few weeks it takes to build that up. But the more they're able to be that responsive one and kind of facilitate the connection to the, to the primary care, usually mom, that really builds up that sense of relationship. And then suddenly they find they're able to do the settling themselves without any concern because the child now trusts them, knows that if something goes wrong and they need that other person, they're going to be taken care of in that regard. 
That's great to know for our dads. Um, they can either be the primary carer or they can, as you say, help the child find the primary carer in the middle of the night, <laughs> which um, creates that very close bond. That's wonderful. Now, through your work and research, you challenge the idea of sleep training a baby and the idea of self-soothing. Sleep training seems to be ingrained in westernized culture, and many parents feel like they should go down this route. What are some alternatives that have worked for your clients? Well, um, let me start by saying that bed sharing is a huge one, and I know there's a lot of controversy about it. I won't get into all the research here, but I can say that if you look at the research, the big to-do over it is not warranted. Uh, it's not to say there isn't an element of safety that needs to be taken into consideration, but it absolutely is is kind of our biological norm. I was talking to Dr. Amanda Detmer recently who said, you can quote me that we are the only species that ever puts our babies away from us. And she's a researcher at Yale for anyone that doesn't know her work, but it's true. So bed sharing in and of itself often facilitates more sleep for a lot of families. Now it doesn't work for all families. So I've had lots who just cannot for some reason. Um, obviously room sharing in the first year is really important to reduce the risk of SIDS. So that's something that we wanna be doing. So that can be done as well and does often make it a little bit easier. But if you can't bed share, uh, one of the things I say is this really understanding the biological rhythm and how certain things affect our sleep. So with families, you know, you can say it sounds simple, but dim lighting for a period of time before bed can have a huge difference. Uh, having the time to get energy out for kids, not having a set bedtime is actually an odd one that lots of people always think I'm crazy on, but rather focusing on waking at a similar time every day, because our circadian rhythm is actually set more by our wake time than our bedtime. And how tired we are throughout the day fluctuates, not by a lot, but probably within about an hour. And that will depend on how active we were, how we felt, what we ate, all these different things, what the temperature is outside, all these things influence how, when we're ready for sleep. So if we have this set idea of a set time, we can actually create more resistance to sleep because we might not be ready for it on a given day. So being able to follow your child's cues with that, getting outside time every day is absolutely essential. Uh, I, I think people underestimate that. And in our culture, it's really hard to get kids out as much as they need. I've heard anything from the range of a minimum of two to four hours a day is ideal for kids to be spending outside. One thing I know other countries do that I appreciate is kids will nap outside. So if they're comfortable napping in, you know, in some cases it's in a pram, in others it's just on a parent walking outside, in others it maybe you just set up a mat. I know in the summertime when my kids were young, we used to just stick the diaper pad outside and put them lying on that to have a nap out there. But Sleeping outside has a positive impact because our babies getting the fresh air don't need to be actively out there, although being active outside is great, but getting as much fresh air as possible really has a positive impact on our sleep. That's a key point, I think, that um, is often misunderstood about um, the fact that sleep um, is not a 10 or 12 hour thing. It's actually a 24 hour thing. You've got to think about the, what you're doing during the day to enable better sleep at night. Exactly. And that's really often forgotten. And so when you start looking at all of the various physiological elements, they take place throughout the day. If you want to think about our circadian rhythm, 
a lot of the driving force of our circadian rhythm is temperature based. And so we normally have, I know, especially probably in Australia, our homes have air conditioning. In Canada, we have central heating and central air, and people tend to keep temperatures pretty stable throughout the day. And yet, biologically speaking, our circadian rhythm has evolved to expect these certain fluctuations that go throughout the day in our external environment that give us cues as to what's happening throughout the day. So when we become aware of this, we can start to incorporate little things in our lives that make these changes possible for us. That's great um, for all new parents. Now, it is... um... Becoming a new parent is uncharted territory and can become very overwhelming at times, not knowing what's normal, what isn't. What are some of the sleep issues your your clients have come to you for support on, thinking they were abnormal but were actually perfectly normal for an infant? I would say the most common is just simply too many night wakings. A lot of people feel that there's a certain age, and in some people they've come to me at three months, at six months, at 12 months, saying that my baby still wakes at night. Why aren't they sleeping through the night? We have this mistaken belief that children are supposed to sleep through the night. And it's not to say that you don't have some kids that naturally go and sleep for long stretches very early and very long, although too early is actually a concern, right? That's often a flag that we need to be waking babies to get them to feed. But even at a certain point, there comes a stage where people believe that kids should wake. And to just quote some research that came out a couple years ago, there was a study that wanted to look at, it was something completely different, but they had data on kids at age two and a half to three and a half. So the same sample going across their wakings, their sleep patterns at night over, you know, they studied it over the span of a week and came up with averages. At two and a half, the average number of wakings that a child had that was longer than five minutes. So this was, if anyone knows, they use actigraphy for this and there can always be a lot of blips. So just to make sure this wasn't just extra restless sleep that they were tracking, they made sure they had to be longer than five minutes. But at that age, the average number of wakings was five a night. And by three and a half, the average number was four a night. So we know that children wake regularly, and this is something they do. Now, many kids at a certain stage will wake and put themselves back to sleep. So the concern is when children need help getting back to sleep, and yet there's really nothing inherently wrong with needing help. Children get to that stage at varying ages, and so understanding that that can be quite normal is important. On the same note, it's really important for families to understand when things are truly off. And I think that's become conflated because parents seem to think everything is off. You know, if their baby wakes, it's a problem. We're missing the cues to so much that is wrong. So a lot of, you know, I I can work with families where we talk about normal sleep. We build up these different sleep hygiene, you know, this good sleep habits that we really should have as people, but that we really don't. And those things all help facilitate better sleep, but it's not sleeping through the night, so to speak, for most families and not for a while. But what does often happen is I get families who come in who have been told by medical professionals, et cetera, that what they need to do is just sleep train because that's the issue. And what's getting missed is these children have 
signs and symptoms of things that do need addressing. So I have had clients I've had to send off to ENTs because their children um, have had ear, nose, throat problems, either in large tonsils to, um, and, and often it ends up being apneas that they get tested for. I've had families with food allergies where that's been diagnosed after they've gone to a nutritionist and then gotten other stuff done. Um, it's just, it's a variety of feeding problems are a really big one. So if a baby's having problems, either digesting food, getting enough, et cetera, they'll wake more frequently. So the problem becomes that so many of these issues get conflated with just because your kid's waking and we're not, we don't have a culture that really separates these out. So although wakings are very normal, there are signs and symptoms of things that might signal something not normal. And one of the things I have on my site, that's a, it's a free screener. It's called the brief infant and toddler sleep screen is just a series of questions to try to identify what's going on. Is your baby normal? You might get a, an answer at the end that says, based on all this, it sounds like your kid's completely normal. Wakings are normal. Here's some articles to read that might tell you a bit more about it. But it also starts flagging people into different areas. And I was so blessed to have other professionals talk to me about the screens that they use to identify problems so that I could ask certain questions on there that might lead people to the support that they need. I'm sure there's some enormous size of relief at the moment when people are listening to this. Um, it's it's really hard not to get caught up in the cycle of what your friends and family say is normal or you Google that, as you say, you're supposed to have a child only wake up three times. So if they wake up five, there must be something abnormal going on, whereas not at all. You're saying five is absolutely normal. So that's amazing. And, uh I would add to that, I think the biggest problem we've had is so much of the research for so long was based on parent report. And so the more, if you're just relying upon parents to tell you how much their kids wake, there's a great study that found that as parents get beyond the kind of three month stage, they become really bad at reporting how much their kids wake. Their awareness is just much less for a variety of reasons. If you put your child in another room, you might not hear every waking. If you sleep train, they may stop calling out, um, which is what we do see in the research. The research that includes actigraphy will show that infants don't wake any less after sleep training. So you're not actually impacting their sleep. You're impacting their calling out to you. But that means you're now reporting that your child should be sleeping less. And if we take those as, as norms, we're really missing the actual data behind the number of wakings that are going on. Incredible information from you, Tracy. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you join us today. We appreciate you taking the time to share your valuable expertise with our listeners. Becoming a new parent can be absolutely daunting and sleep can become such a cause of stress. So this discussion is a very important one. Listeners, Tracy has a lot of fantastic resources and courses available on her website, evolutionaryparenting.com. If you're looking for more information on this, the link will also be up on the Fathering channel. Tracy, once again, thank you so much, and we hope to speak with you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fathering First podcast. If you like what you're hearing and want to give us some love, share it with your friends and leave a review on your preferred podcast app. If you're feeling extra generous, you can also donate to help us continue to change children's lives through fathering. The link is in the description. Thank you in advance. The content doesn't stop here. If you're looking for more support between episodes, check out the Fathering channel 
at thefatheringproject.org forward slash fathering dash channel for all your fathering resources.